let's start this the right way. So okay. we're clean glasses. Yep. A little bit of red breast in TX. Yep. So oh, that smells good. It is good. And it's a f- well-deserved one on a Friday. Oh, yeah. So I, I would dispute the statement that COVID has allowed us to have more time, though. Oh, well, okay. Cer- certain people. He's in oil and gas. Yeah. So Yeah, we had more time. A lot more time. You just stopped drilling or? No, well, right about the time COVID hit, you, uh, of course, that affects demand. Mm-hmm. When you lock everybody down, it's not like many planes are flying. Not many people are driving. Um, so demand goes down. At the same time, you also had uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia pick up the worst possible time ever to get into a slap fight over who can produce the most oil cheaply because they were arguing about whether or not OPEC should continue to cut supply. And um, they flooded the market with cheap barrels. And so there was a time frame in March where you saw an oil contract go for negative $25. I remember that. Where they literally, if you had an oil contract, you paid $25 to not physically take ownership of those barrels. Um, they, so they broke the internet uh, and the oil markets in general. And we went from, I want to say we were like a $55 barrel of oil at the time. And we dropped down to like 23 It was low. So every rig come every drilling company out there like us cut rigs. Uh, a lot of them cut people. Uh, a lot of them laid a lot of folks off, mm-hmm. and uh, the U.S. industry ate it pretty hard on that one. And most of us just covered our head and started raiding the sofa cushions looking for change. <laughs> so, in that in that time period, what what do you do? I mean, when people are saying. I'm paying a negative price. Yeah. I'm just not going to take ownership. Is that because I don't have a warehouse? I don't have a place to. Yeah. And and a lot of that has to do, a lot of that has to do with the commodity brokerages that they go out and trade on contracts. Uh, For us as a physical driller, a lot of times we'll hedge our oil. So we have a certain amount of our barrels that already have a price set to them. And that's to protect us against price volatility. Um, the other thing that we do is at that point, you focus not on a growth strategy of drilling your way into more production to increase value, but you begin to refine uh, cutting costs. You cut your drilling costs, which are a big part of it, and you start looking at like how you can produce most effectively. I know like with my job, um, that was probably the time when I dove, and this kind of fits with what you guys do. We dove really heavily into our data analytics. Um, looking at like what our costs are for certain operations, looking what our, our operated partner costs are for like people that we partner with on wells to figure out like who's the best stewards of our dollars. All right. And so you got into data analytics. There's, mm-hmm. you know, he and I are both networking guys. Oh, yes. So I think we probably look at things from a little bit slightly different perspective of, you know, how are you connecting things to gain efficiencies, mm-hmm. utilities and oil and oil refineries. That's a lot of OT networks, right? Sure. So yeah, you know the difference between an OT and an IP network? Uh, I know an IP network. I don't know an OT. It's operational technology. It's like PLCs and it's a more legacy connectivity. It's typically <laughs> serial lines. Serial lines. <laughs> they, right. Stuff like that. They weren't networked. They were just connected to a thing. But over the last few years, people have taken the PLCs and converted them into Ethernet or into some kind of 
uh, radio running two, four, five gigahertz, get it on the Wi-Fi network, and that. Yeah, so you can pull data without sending a person to go and touch these things. Right? right. We're beginning to see a lot more of that, or at least I'm beginning to see a lot more of that on the midstream side and on the wellhead What's side. What's the midstream? Uh, midstream would be pipelines. Pipeline. Pipeline and refinery company. Pipeline. Pipeline's yeah. interesting because- with Yeah, what, that made the news. <laughs> it was kind of in the news. I, I was joking with uh, my wife actually a couple of weeks ago, woke up and- um, Reading the paper on Friday or Monday, whenever the Columbia yeah. thing first hit with the ransomware, and I, and I said, well, cybersecurity just became important to every person in the country because people kind of tend to blow cybersecurity off, whether yeah. it's training or how you invest or how you network. I know you're a big proponent of how you network dictates your security posture, right? Well, it's more like if you build a network correctly, maybe you don't have to worry so much because you weren't a moron up front. But the problem is, is that the vast majority of people are morons up front. Yeah. Well, they're getting sold something. You know, I need this many Splunks or I need this many Palo Altos or, you know, all that's kind of Or isolated. like a giant flat network for the entire oil pipeline is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Well, you'll definitely end up paying a ransomware with that. Right. Perfectly reasonable for <laughs> yeah. the person that's writing the ransomware. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> so how so with that, that was a flat network? I would guess so. I mean, we're both not involved with Columbia, but if yeah. you looked at what's the threat vector there? Something like a ransomware, you know that the way that stuff works, right? Is that it, for the most part, what it's going to do I is do, it's but going they to may go not. and hit like, you know, every, uh, every device that it can locally connect to, right? There's right. Almost... I would say universal, right? You take a look at any piece of ransomware, any piece of malware, any piece, actually, internet worms, different thing, right? But like ransomware in particular, right? Tends to hit every device that's on its L2, right? And it goes and checks, oh, is this one of these machines that I can affect the same way? And if so, do so. Why? Because the goal is to get at the file server. Once you've got the file server, you've got basically your money, essentially. Yeah, or they need to you lock everybody out. Right, so... That's generally the idea, right? The fact that, you know, a gigantic multi-state oil pipeline could get hit that easily clearly shows that there was no interior design architecture or defense against attack in that entire system. Like it was architected poorly, right? Obvious. Right. Whether it was just one L2 or whatever, well, it doesn't really matter. Whatever they did was, was a terrible idea. And the results speak for themselves. But you know that... With that happening, there's going to be people lining up Columbia and all these other pipeline managers and types of, you know, critical infrastructure companies knocking on doors saying, hey, we've got a firewall for you. Firewall, cure all your ills. And that's. Well, yeah, it's called security theater, right? It's right. like after 9-11, what did we do? Oh, let's go and uh, put up some TSA and stuff like that and whatever. Yeah. And did that really do anything for us? Probably I lost not. a couple pocket knives at the <laughs> yeah. airport. Uh, I, I was about to say I did I, lose a pocket knife or two to that. Lost a pocket knife. I lost crimpers and scissors ago. And scissors. Yeah. So I lost crimpers in Phoenix, Arizona. I had been from Dallas to Philadelphia to Baltimore, then the Phoenix, and I was getting ready to come home in that Sky Harbor. Running in my plane, a guy pulls crimpers out, which you know, crimp Ethernet crimpers have a half an inch blade on it. That's the worst thing you could do is grab somebody by the pinky and threaten their pinky. That's about it. Other than that, you could bludgeon somebody with it. Sure. Which 
I mean, think about what people carry on an airplane. I could bludgeon you more with well, a laptop. I, I love the uh, the Sky Harbor, you know, places where you go in and they have the letter openers for sale on the inside. Right, right. Well, so <laughs> I, the guys, I'm running late. I haven't been home in like 10 days. And guy goes, you could go mail this, but you're not taking it through. Like, just put it in your donation box. You know what? It's worth about 90 bucks. Why don't you keep it at, at the end of the day? And, you know, he just rolls his eyes at me. Go get on the plane. I'm sitting there. I'm relaxed. Look over and I see this 82-year-old woman. Ballpark 82. I didn't ask her. She's sitting there. Nine-inch crochet needles. <laughs> nice. Back and forth and doing this. And I'm like, her $4 worth of knitting stuff. Right. She's sitting there with that shit. And I've just lost a $90 pair of crimpers. Yeah. Like, you know yeah. what? The, Security theater, right? Security theater. What it, the only thing it seemed to have accomplished, right, is that it allows the people that are kind of, I don't know if I want to say uneducated or just, you know, they're not aware of how these things actually work. It makes them all feel a little better, right? Yeah. Right. So that's exactly what's going to happen with this pipeline thing. They're going to do some stuff and it's going to make all the people that don't actually understand anything feel better. Will it actually have solved any problems? No. Of course not. Why would we do something useful? That would make too much sense. Right. They'll get hit again. Yeah, and, sure. and then somebody will lose their job and I'll go. For sure. We, we just bought a shit ton of firewalls and Sims and all these other things and, and little sensors to go throughout the network. And we still got hit. And ultimately, they need to segment the network better. They need a better network design. They need a better network design. They need a better network design. Get down to think, think about, you know, what they're doing, why they're doing it, right? You know, right. but nobody wants to do that because they're too concerned with, you know, either A, how much money they make or B, getting the job done as opposed to thinking about what the global implications of this are, right? Or thinking about, you know, what are the ways in which this is going to go bad and affect all sorts of people that you didn't, you know, consider, right? No one wants to think those thoughts, right? Because those thoughts are bad for share yeah, those price. Are not, those, are nice, <laughs> those are not nice thoughts and people don't like to have them. And right. yet, at the same time, the entire Eastern Seaboard found out that one pipeline carries 45% of their fuel. So, you know, now they're they're keenly aware of it. Like, you're, to your point, it's how long they have that pressure on them to figure out that that's something they need to fix. And they're going to piss away a lot of money doing things that are quota-driven, not not intellectually the right thing to do to provide more protection. Yeah. I mean, there's things that they can do. It's just typically what happens in this industry is people are driven by quotas and they do things that are. Yeah. I was going to ask like, to what degree is it, you know, that people actually look at an architecture as opposed to slap a bandaid on? Never. It's band-aids. Is it? It's always band-aids. People are trying to protect sunk costs and, previous poor decisions and you know to i would say that a lot of them they don't recognize that the previous decision was not the best decision there's a place where you could be ignorantly bliss mm -hmm. and ignorance is not to say that somebody's stupid they're, yeah. they're just unaware sure they're just unaware and there's very few you gotta look at how people are motivated and what people are doing to feed their families along the way. So, no, there's probably a little bit more to it, but in a very simplistic way, it's it, it's band-aids. 
And yeah. but you know, you guys since Columbia, does that impact you guys as drillers? It doesn't. It, it doesn't affect us in that sense. Now it does affect. But, us. But do you all raise the question internally and go? Hey, our buddies over here just got kicked in the teeth. Are we ready to get kicked in the teeth? Right. Are and we that, wearing a cup? Yeah, exactly. That's something I know that we always look at from an IT side for us. Um, one of the things that we found, and it's not as bad if you're just a U.S. producer, U.S. driller, but if you have, like, say, any degree of, like, international work that you're doing, you always have to be aware that hacking is potential both from the non-nation state entities that are looking for maybe, say, ransomware or just trying to gain access to your stuff by comparison you actually have in case some cases nation states that will go in and attempt to hack multinational companies um i remember when i was working and we didn't mention this before when i worked for mr pickens i used to work for t boone pickens um when i worked with him we were aware of uh right after the united states had gone in and iraq had been relatively secured and they they were in their provisional government putting together the first contracts to see who would you know get the opportunity to produce the oil fields and operate the oil fields that were pre-existing to get that country money and get them going again? Um, China went in and hacked a lot of people just to figure out what the bids were going to be for that, so they could make sure that they slightly overbid or slightly outperformed what was needed, so that they would secure those contracts. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to find themselves getting intruded. China went a lot of it. China went a lot of it. Yep. U.S. fought a lot, and China got a lot of contracts. It was not a good trade. So uh, <laughs> why did you say that it's not as prevalent? Or you said something about how, oh, if you're a U.S. producer and a U.S., then you don't have yeah, to think of only, Why is that? Only, I'm just saying only in the sense that the the idea of targeting hacking for the purpose of getting bids. Um, it does happen still in the United States. Like we still have U.S. lease sales that happened through the BLM, and I suppose in theory someone would chase that. It's what just, is that? Um, the BLM is the Bureau of Land Management, okay. and the Bureau of Land Management is the one in charge of the minerals that are under federal land. So if there is federal lands and you are a company and you want to go and drill on those federal lands, they will do bids, and they will have an area defined as this is a lease that's up for sale. You will go in and place a bid on that. That's a blind bidding deal where any company can place a bid. They'll reveal the bids, top bid wins, and that lease will then go to you for like a 10-year time period. And that allows you the rights to develop the oil and gas minerals that are underneath there. And then you can secure those minerals by developing them. Mm. And so you're you're basically thinking about the fact that most of the people that are going to attempt the penetration are going to be people that are outside the United States because you well, think I know that it, most I know people... specifically it happened in the outside news. I don't doubt that it probably, there may still be people trying to do that internally, but right now chasing bids on BLM stuff is probably not where there's going to be as much money. Um, still, always a chance. But I know like for an oil and gas company or even for when we were with the hedge fund, there's always people looking to intrude your system just because they can. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's enough dollars and cents at play that, you know, that's the reason that when we do oil and gas deals, we record people's interest back six decimal points, because even at six decimal points, it's a lot of money. Right. <clears throat> so, I mean, I can imagine just with that thing that you just said there, well, you know, obviously what you want is you want to know the next competitor's bid and have it and outbid them oh, sure. by exactly it's, one penny. Right? It's a major advantage. Yeah. Especially if it's a government entity where they're not going to be able to swing any favoritism and it's just the letter of the bid. Yeah. So, I mean, 
Yeah. I, if I was any one of those competitors, my first thing to do would be to go to some dude in the Ukraine or Estonia or whatever and just say, hey, just give me the data from all the other people. Yeah. Whoever it takes. Yeah. Whoever you know is going to bid on. And normally you have a pretty good idea because oil and gas companies have a tendency to group acreage together, especially with horizontal drilling now. Because an average well, it used to be that you would drill vertical wells and all you needed was 80 acres and you would take it down. Horizontal drilling's changed that where, you know, we can drill two or three mile long laterals from a single pad location. Cuts down on the environmental risk, cuts down on location building, cuts down on infrastructure. Uh, because you have the benefit of producing more of the zone laterally and only having like a single surface location. Okay. Did you run into this much when you were with T. Boone? Um, with us, most of the drilling that I did with him was on his ranch. And so we didn't have the issue with the leasing there. Um, but I, we were, like I said, we were aware of it because we had equity traders that looked at the different oil and gas energy companies, uh, the, both the drilling, exploration, midstream companies, um, upstream companies. So anywhere along that, that line. And so, you know, you keep track of the news and you knew that intrusions were happening because it's not like targets getting hacked and visas getting hacked and everybody goes, Oh no, oil companies don't need cash. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, they're going to go where the money is. Right. So. I wonder how many times there have been penetrations of this nature that no one even talks about. I'm sure it's daily. Because like, right. you know, it's one thing if, oh, well, you get a third party that's going to ransomware you and then go and be like, send me, you know, seven bajillion dollars in Bitcoin. And sure, that's newsworthy, whatever, whatever. Right. right. But, oh, you got a bidding process yeah. and someone else might win if they know what your bid is. Dude, yeah. come on, man. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's the, so and, easy. <laughs> and to, to give you an idea, if you look at, say, the Permian Basin is where most most activity right now is centered around the Permian Basin in the United States. Right. And there's multiple zones there that can be drilled and there's multiple spots within those zones that can be drilled uh, because those zones are sometimes thousands of feet deep. So you can hit different places. Um, and so you're looking at, you know, you can take two miles. You get a two mile square. OK, which is two sections. Um, the bidding on that. It, you know, you'll bid per acre and the numbers I've seen them reach up into like the $14,000 per acre amount. So you're talking about several million dollars to get it. But you look at the reserve value of the oil and gas that's underneath it. And, you know, you spend, say, hypothetically, you know, five, six million dollars or something like that, getting a couple of square miles. But then you might have a couple hundred million dollars worth of oil and gas reserves that the, you then get to put on your books. If you're a public company, borrow against from the bank, you can produce based on what the price is, you know. And the other thing about it is the way a lease works is typically most leases are written where whatever you level you have drilled, you reserve all the acreage above it. You hold that acreage for later production. So if I drill my latest, my lowest objective first, and I have, say, eight zones in there, and I can fit four wells per, per say, every two square miles in each zone. I can have two square miles contain up to 24 wells, ballpark, maybe more. And each one of those, you know, bring on several million barrels of oil, which go at $50, $60. I mean, it's real easy to make a whole lot of money off two square miles. And, and if I were to... Square miles. <laughs> so if I were to... So if you knew more the, than ransomware, but if I really wanted to control that pad, could I lock you out of that pad? Um, that's where that's that this goes back side. to the midstream. So midstream has two sides. They have delivery to wherever the service ends. 
So like in this case, independence was already refined product. Right. But then you also have gathering lines and those gathering lines bring in the raw oil and gas and take those two refineries. So you have midstream that's bringing in raw product, then it gets refined, then you send it off as refined product to whoever the end user is. So any of those points, I think, are a point that someone would have value in being able to control. Well, I was thinking about is I've got this mental image of a nodding donkey out there. It's got a PLC connected to it, but if I was able to gain control of that... And, and I know it's it, probably, it would hurt you. I mean, in, in some sense, because depending on what the well's flowing, there's, you look at a lot of the things going on with the pressures in, in the well, you can actually damage a well if you shut a well off the wrong way. And you could, you could cause other problems. Let's say you wanted to be a horrible, do make a horrible environmental spill for somebody. You just want to cause problems. Yeah. You don't, not worried about main cash, you know, then yeah, there's a way that you could maybe mess with sensors on what tanks had or what flow rates are and overproduce it until they spill. Not if it's being watched, but not, not every operator watches their stuff as tight as they probably should. Are those things manned 24-7 or? In, I know in our case, yes. I mean, we have people, not manned in the sense of somebody's there, but it's being checked every single day. And there's a certain rate that wells flow at so that you're aware of it. And but, there's an alarm. Yeah, and there's and there's I know that there's systems that, but this goes back to how secure. I know there's systems where if something exceeds a flow rate, or something exceeds a pressure, something exceeds a temperature, that you get alarmed and notified so you can dispatch a person to it. No, that's good. I wonder how many people still remember how to do things without computers, because you know you got all these pipelines, you got all this sure. stuff going on, right? And there's probably a person that's watching and looking and you know supposed to be doing this right but if you were to take all the computers away from them do they still know which lever to pull which button to push at can the, they still do it at the wellhead yes i can say that at the wellhead as an operator yes so because it's still a game of valves out there. it's it's funny how high tech the oil and gas industry is and in other areas it is ridiculously low tech um there are there's still a lot of things where it's like a wrench is a hammer universally out there yeah. Yeah. And so that that part I'm not worried. Where I where I look at more is in the transportation aspect of it. Once we get the oil out of the ground, where you get it from A to B, I think that's where you start seeing risks and problems. Um, you know, drilling is very high tech. So for example, like drilling, whenever we're drilling on a rig, we have real time feeds. Like our, our company, we literally have a 24-hour day manned war room with guys who sit there and do nothing on screens but watch every single thing that the drilling operator is doing out on the rig 24 hours a day. Christmas, weekends, Thanksgiving, doesn't matter. We've got guys in there watching four or five rigs going at a time. And that's how operations run. And it's the only way you can do it and be efficient because you're paying for that rig every single day. You're paying for every rental and every service. You're paying for every expert on it. So you've got to be on top of that. So going back to the pipeline, a lot of different things connected on the pipeline, 5,500 miles of it, Simon. I think I know the answer to this, but you would be an advocate of probably a discrete L2 network, a logical network for almost every single asset that's on that pipeline. Doesn't, it could be logical, could be physical, could be whatever. But the point is, is that you need segmentation, 
right? If you're going to take a gigantic asset like that mm -hmm. and put it behind one segment, assume one organizational unit, well, then you've got exactly one target, which is going to result in exactly what happened. Single penetration, complete and utter total failure. This is no different than if you have a boat, or not a boat, I guess, a ship. When you have a ship, it has watertight compartments. Why? So it doesn't sink. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's no different. But people seem to forget very obvious things that we've all been taught since we were children. Don't make a ship with one giant container compartment that's under the waterline. Oh, wait, let's make a giant 5,500-mile pipeline with one container across the... So what are you doing? We knew this. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you got to pay for your lack of foresight or remembrance. Well, yeah, this is one of my favorite statements, right? I love diversity. Yeah. We're only alive because of diversity. Biodiversity is the only reason we are here. If there wasn't diversity, we would all be dead because we'd all be the same and one virus would have killed us all, right? Well, it's the same thing in technology. Diversity is a wonderful thing. If not anything else, diversity is what allows us to tell which things are good and which things are bad, even my, in, you know, with the things I produce. I love it when there's competition and diversity because, well, then it becomes pretty clear that what I'm doing is right and what everyone else is doing is idiotic, right? So, you know, the fact that there are people that are doing it the wrong way is a good thing because then that helps you understand the people that are doing it the right way. Right, <laughs> right. It highlights that there are some people with a cranial rectum inversion. <laughs> well, and we joke about like, you know, occasionally sometimes your job in life is to be the PSA for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and the pipeline guys, they did, did a good job of that. Yeah, the PSA. I, I, don't, so I don't think they wanted it, but I, unfortunately the job chose them. It'll be interesting over the next few months how people react to that. And if it becomes a wake up call, or if it's more the same of, you know, it's screwed, I'll just pay the ransom. Yeah, screw it up probably, and ransom. Yeah. yeah. Pro you know, and there's some people out there that look at it and they go, you know, because they're presented, you need some of this, you need some of that, you need these firewall sins and these are things, bigger, better, faster routers and switches and all these are things without getting into the architecture and you're taking all these disparate parts and throwing them in there and they look at the price tag and they go, well, shit, these guys only asked for a couple million dollars ransom. You're asking me for $10 million plus a maintenance agreement. Yeah. Yeah. And then the we'll question the two is, million. Well, the question is, okay, we'll pay them the million in ransom. What about the day they decide five or 12 or 20? Yeah. Or does it say they decide not to turn it on regardless? I mean, the fundamental problem yeah. though, right, is one of the things you were saying, Jason, which is that motivation, right? right. What are people motivated by and why? So going back to, and you know, this is something we said on other episodes and I hate to keep on beating these guys up, but like Boeing, right? So before Boeing moved its headquarters to Chicago, what was Boeing about? Making great airplanes. As soon as they moved it to Chicago and they decided that, you know what? Boeing leadership, they don't need to know have STEM backgrounds. They don't need to know about airplanes. All they need to do is make sure the share price is high. What's Boeing about? Making, making money, yeah. not making great airplanes. Well, it's the same problem here, right? What is this pipeline about? The guys that are in charge of that pipeline, what, what's their purpose in life? Yeah, well, unfortunately, probably making money. Probably making money, right? Their, their, their purpose in life is not, oh, we need to make sure that we have a mechanism to move whatever it is that goes in that pipeline from point A to point B because it is a critical national infrastructure to preserve the American way of life. That is not on the agenda. right. And so because that's not on the agenda and it's only money, well, what do you think they're going to do? Oh, yeah, we'll just do the best to keep us meeting. Another retardation like that. Yeah. 
It's true though. It's very true. And it's one of the things that also I found interesting because you watch the the public outcry from it. What did everybody do? They couldn't get gasoline and they yelled at a politician. How many wells do you think a politician's drill? I'm just asking. Like how much oil do you think those guys find? They couldn't find oil in a pet boys. Okay. I mean, it's just a fact. Like they don't I'm understand. I'm sure they couldn't find a pet boy And, and we did that. We ran maybe into a this. couple of them. Yeah. Crenshaw, maybe. Yeah. We, we ran well, he's into, blind. <laughs> he can find him with one eye. Right. <laughs> but we, uh, we found this a lot of times when we talked with Mr. Pickens, when we would go and talk with politicians in Washington, you can't have a 10 minute conversation on energy because they run out of their talking points in five minutes most of the time. And they won't give you another five minutes past that because they don't have someone yelling at them. And they can't figure out a way that, you know, it necessarily makes any money for them. And other than to decry us and say we're all horrible human beings and we're ruining everything. Uh, and the price of gas is too high at the same time, too. I can tell you right now, gas price. Oh, of course. Way, way too, too high. high. Until, you go, until you go to Europe. Yeah. And then you realize oh, what high gas California. Like. Yeah. Yeah. California is what knocking on five bucks a gallon right That's now. Still nothing compared yeah. to Europe, right? Oh, yeah. Four yeah. British pounds for a liter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I feel bad. That's a good way to teach the metric system to kids is <laughs> through gas pricing. Yes. Here's a gallon of milk. Here's a liter of milk. <laughs> yeah. Caught. Now here's the price. Which one do you want to? Which one do you like the price point better? Yeah. Now let's look at gas. How you get around and move things. Yep. Well, it'll be interesting because even electrification of vehicles, as they talk about cars, right? Uh, you had Ford just the other day put out the new Ford Lightning, where they're talking about, you know, we're going to have an electric vehicle. And, and people think, okay, well, that's that's going to fix our hydrocarbon issue. We're Not really. Yeah. We're going to have a problem. Like, no, no. How you about airplanes? You still got to plug. Well, you still got to plug that in. And where is your electricity going to come from? Well, it's going to come from, you know, from solar and wind. Uh, not exactly because you guys you guys find that like for the most part you know you're, you're still going to make yes you will make some energy but the wind doesn't always blow the sun doesn't always shine and unfortunately NIMBY if you put politicians in front of the windmills it, it helps <laughs> yeah and if you push them slowly towards it <laughs> helps even more, helps even more. Um, a term limit. but you know that but Energy infrastructure is not pretty. People don't want to see, always want to see windmills on their sight lines and right. stuff like that. So it's one of those things like, you know, and the other deal too is batteries. People don't think about the rare earth metals involved in batteries. And there's not unlimited supply of those. So we're going to stop drilling and go into mining. I've seen strip mining before. I can tell you it's not pretty. You no, know? it's a big hole. Yeah, it's a very large hole, um, which is great if you wanted to make a bass lake. Otherwise, it's not useful. Well, and how, what do you use for mining? What kind of earth movers and how are they powered? Yeah, they're typically powered by diesel. Diesel. So, yeah, yeah. it's going it, to, there's no goal, there's no silver bullet for any of these issues. It's always, it goes back to diversity. There's energy diversity, and I think it's always something that's worth pursuing, you know, and, uh, but, you know, towards things like pipelines and infrastructure, there's going to be vulnerabilities in all of it right now. We, we always used to go with the electrical grid, was a big thing that we pushed with, uh, because for wind power, and for solar, you need to be able to do energy switching. Mm -hmm. So when you are generating electricity from your solar, you need to be able to use that source as your primary. Or when you're getting wind, you use that as a primary. And when those die down, you need to be able to switch to your gas or to your natural gas powered as your base load to run in. Well, not all the grids are made equal. We have a lot of aging infrastructure and a lot of it is, you know, it needs to be converted. It needs to be switched where it can handle those increased loads. And like we, you and I have talked about this before. Snowpocalypse. When we had snowpocalypse in Texas, they they found out, hey, even with ERCOT and everything that we've done, our grid's not as agile as we thought it was. No. Have you seen what they're doing in legislation right now? I 
I've read a little bit about I, it. But. I know that they've pushed a few things. I've not seen anything defined yet. It's anytime they're in the early part of talking, like it, it doesn't mean anything oh until God, they've like three days left in their biennium. Yeah, it doesn't. To me, it's one of those deals. It doesn't mean much until I can finally see what a bill is. And a lot of times, even in the bills, they're kind of obscure. So it's just like allocate money for X. Since you brought it up, what was the, uh, how would you surmise what we went through in February? Was it February? Yeah. Yeah, February. yeah, it was February. You basically had a combination of things. So during the snowstorm, we didn't have enough wind to really push the turbine power. Uh, at the same time, you had um, the the solar not really helping us out. And then on top of that, you had a lot of people at home creating a demand event because they couldn't get out and travel. And so everybody's turning their heaters on. And then you go a step further than that, the natural gas that you need for power generation, when it reaches a certain temperature, people don't realize that, but gas under pressure as it escapes drops the temperature of the gas. Well, wellheads will freeze off. And so you have a decrease in the amount of gas you have available mm -hmm. as a supply function. And then you also need, not all of our gas plants are on. And when we need them to turn them on, it isn't just like we flip switch and the generator's on and we pump more power. And you've got to actually build up low, get everything fired up, and you have to incentivize them, the people who own those plants, to fire those plants up and get them running. So you had that affecting the gas price, which caused the gas price spike that was around that same time. Um, and even then, once you get all the electricity on, you have ice on the lines, places where those cause problems, people sliding and hitting electrical poles. Because in Texas, I don't know if you've noticed, we don't drive on ice well. It's not one of our gifts. We can tolerate 116 degree, you know, heat during the summer. Yeah. But but us on ice is not pretty. We run from shade tree to shade tree. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and there's the reason they invented the siesta in this part of the world. It's like 2 o'clock to about 6, we're done. Thanks. Yeah. There's no more energy. Yeah, we're done. But it's one of those things that you just had multiple things chip away at the system. And in the end, the system couldn't handle it. And so, you know, it's funny, everybody wants to blame ERCOT and there's some yeah, blame to be passed around there. Just like as, sure, you know, everybody takes it, everybody takes can, a everybody can take a lump in this one, you know, but at the end of the day, we also have a lot more people here now and we're putting a lot more strain on the infrastructure that we do have. When those type of events happen, are the power companies, are they doing a good job of monitoring and understanding what's coming and they i think they know that it's coming what i think they couldn't anticipate just hold on tight i don't think they could anticipate us getting that kind of cold weather for the length of time that we did and it i, I mean you had for god's sake you had snow down at texas a&m you know oh there was a, in brownsville yeah that's the mexican border we yeah had snow. we had snow and that's rare you know we don't normally get anything close to snow no we barely I say we got more ice than anything here in Dallas yeah. or Worth. And that's the unfortunate thing. Like, you know, for the for the northern for the Norths that they're laughing, we'll take it. That's fine. Um, but at the same time, uh He's a we, New Yorker. Yeah. Well but we don't we don't get the snow. We get black ice. You know, we get the slush that melts and then freezes again at night and then melts and freezes again at night and takes four or five days. And then half the people down here drive pickup trucks with no weight in the back end. So, you know, it's Darwinism at work. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of two-wheel drive pickup trucks, which yes. is the most insane thing to me is why would you ever buy a pickup that's not not four-wheel drive? Yeah. All-wheel drive. So what would you say about the concept that maybe snowpocalypse was a result of a bad architecture as well? Isn't oh. that the same thing? Oh, yeah. We, yeah. And it is. 100%. Absolutely. 
And that was one of the things with Mr. Pickens. We had what was called the Pickens plan. He did it back in I was going to ask you to bring up Pickens. Yeah. And his whole point was that the United States was close to energy independence and that we could provide enough of our own fuel and our own resources. And his whole point was like, I don't care if it's coal, electric, gas, whatever, as long as it's American. That was his point. Let's just produce American energy because we have enough natural gas. We're good for the next 200 years at current demand rates increasing. Um, why are we spending our time and effort and money protecting the Middle East and sending money to the Middle East for our gasoline stores and our diesel stores that they bring over here and put into our market and paying for both sides of a war? And, you know, why are we, why are you in nine carrier groups? Why are we sending carrier groups over there to protect Saudi Arabia and the Straits of Hormuz when 85% of the oil that moves through there never makes it to our market? It goes straight to Asia. Like we're being the world's police, we're paying all the bills for it, and we're not getting the benefit of it other than we're using someone else's energy. And his whole thing was like, and we have plenty of our yeah. Own. Let's not do that. We can build infrastructure and do things here, you know, U.S. energy, and just keep that cash here, and then we don't have to be involved in the geopolitics, you know, geopolitics of that region unless there's a clear interest that actually suits us. And what's the reasoning that you would that, that you would put forward as to why things are architected the way that they are then? Um, because it's a real interesting mix. Uh, on, Most bitter? Yeah, on, on one side, it's it has to do with political viewpoints. There's a lot of people that think that we need to be involved in that region, that if you create a power vacuum, someone else occupies it, and they're worried about the United States and force projection. You also have people who look at it, yes, please, you have people who look at it from a standpoint of we shouldn't pick energy winners and losers. It needs to be a free market system. Now, mind that's you, that's the diversity argument. That's to some a, extent, that would right? be a diversity argument. But let's look at who else is in that in that world. So you have us as independent producers in the United States based on businesses, and you have OPEC, which is a cartel. I'm probably going to say that's not an open market. That's a bit of a rigged game, and we don't even have a seat at the table because we don't have a national oil company. So, like, they can use their energy as a geopolitical weapon against each other, like Saudi Arabia and Russia did right as COVID hit. Those, those two countries literally went to a slap fight to see who's going to get the market share. We'll force U.S. companies' heads underwater and just let them drown. Meanwhile, we're going to produce cheap oil and see who can get most into the market. And we have no players in that game. We just have a bunch of businesses that try to make returns for the investor. That's not altogether uncommon to try to collapse the market. Ruckus did that a few years ago in the hotel space. Indeed, they tried. Yeah. You know, did a decent job of it. Yeah. So it's one of those things that, you know, it wouldn't hurt the United States to protect its own. I, I'm of the mindset, I'll go a step further. Make a nationalized U.S. oil company. I don't think it's like the government. They won't run as smoothly as private industry, uh, you know, but then maybe you can flex your, your energy muscles a little bit more. Um, What's we, the trade-off? The trade-off is once again now competition. Our government's competing with our private industry. Yeah, and they wouldn't do a good job of it. I mean, to be quite honest, they just don't. Yeah. Bureaucracy sort of chokes everything out. But, you know, it's it's one of those deals I think that you just don't see Washington push that stuff forward because a lot of times they don't understand it and it is kind of a convoluted system and you have a handful of them that will look at it, but not many. Um, one of the things I find funny is like, you know how you go to the gas station right now and you'll see the little sticker on there telling you there's X amount of ethanol in your gas, mm -hmm. right? The reason for that is you have senators in all these corn producing states that said, by God, we're going to get my farmers federal cash to grow corn 
so we can produce ethanol. So whether or not you want the ethanol, you're getting the ethanol. Okay. The Koch brothers who were against Mr. Pickens plan at the time when we were doing it, were like, we don't need to pick winners and losers. And that was their, their public speech to all the Republican side. And the Republicans would mark, oh, yeah, the Koch brothers. We don't need winners or losers. Koch brothers never mentioned. By the way, we own the three largest ethanol-producing plants in the United States. <laughs> so don't pick winners and losers because we're winning right now, <laughs> if you don't mind. you know. But it is ironic because we found the most help uh, coming from us, from the Democrats, uh, from the environmental side, because they understand the value of diversifying the energy portfolio. And they care more about the environment, but still is an angle that works. And we're like, yeah, environment's better. Like, use more free energy entering the system. Why shouldn't you? You know, as a scientist, it's silly not to. But uh, the funny thing about it was, is there were, the Denver Republicans were the ones that shot down most of our stuff because they said we don't want to pick a winner and loser. Yeah, it's two sides of the same coin anymore. I was like, cool. Well, by not picking a side... We get to lose. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah. I, I am still just from a general system perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I have been around cybersecurity, but that pipeline exposure highlighted what I knew was already coming. But I, with our news cycles just rotating so fast, I wonder if, what are we, two weeks past? Yeah. Two weeks past. Or do we care anymore? Nope. No. Do we, we don't care anymore? No. We're, didn't hurt we're good? No. Didn't hurt enough. It didn't hurt enough. It, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if it affects, if there was a local election, let's say you had a, a, a state runoff or something like that for Congress or whatever, mm-hmm. then it would be noted. You know, let a seat be open in like uh, West Virginia or South Carolina, then yeah, it'd still be in the news. Because they could beat each other up with it. And they blame each other like either one of them had anything to do with it. Or if the people were slightly more sophisticated or had the domain knowledge to really do something more interesting than ransomware, right? Clearly, as you said, right, with those pipelines, there's going to be ways to cause permanent physical damage, right? Not something that, you know, you can repair in a week, but like preferably something that you would, would shut the pipeline down for three years. Yeah, I mean, if you had somebody with a with a mean streak that had an axe to grind, as yeah. opposed to somebody just looking for money, I thought it was interesting that the hackers released a statement shortly thereafter, going, "Hey, in the future, we're going to be a little more careful with our ransomware that we produce, so that we don't take on things that affect like a whole bunch of normal people. We're just going to rip off companies. We we promise we won't do things that hurt individuals, because I'm sure they heard enough shots fired in the." in the right place so they realize oh crap we're going to be hunted now you know my imagination starts running wild on that stuff yeah it almost felt to me like you know you had this ransomware group that's sitting over there in eastern europe and somebody in dc picks up the phone and calls somebody in moscow and says you better call these bastards off or because i got a couple bombs that i can just pull the pin on yeah that's in your network so you got about 20 minutes to end this oh sure Oh, and I always wonder how deep that goes, especially after the Israeli stuff got revealed, you know, when they were uh, taking down Iran's oh, the, centrifuges. Yeah, yeah. Centrifuges, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which they which did was that. a brilliant moment. <laughs> yeah. And then the Russians took down the Ukraine power plant. So, yeah. I, you know, there's I mean, a lot of people, I believe, that were all in each other's networks already. Yeah. I love, I, I love it's the low? mutually assured destruction of somebody yanks too hard on the pin. Yeah. I think we it's funny because we had mutual destruction on the nuke side covered. So now we need mutual destruction in cyberspace covered. Yeah. <laughs>
No, we we could go to the Stone Ages real quick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was telling you uh, one of these other episodes, I read a book that was, um, uh, it's that Mitch Rapp series, Vince Flynn writes it, and Vince Flynn passed away, but the guy that picked it up for him, the most recent book is very much about taking our grid and and it was an inside job, but it was shutting down the entire grid. And if you follow the storyline about it, after three days, oh, it gets ugly fast. Supply chain disruption, of not having power, not having trucks moving food, it turns into Mad Max really fast, and people start dying. People start hunting. I mean, this thing becomes yeah, a that becomes practical. That's a prat. Yeah, I expect to think you know. Uh, through yeah. through primordial mail, if the thing you know hits the fan and you <laughs> yeah. have to, <laughs> I'll tell you where I'm holding up. Okay, well, yeah, come to my place. I got ammo. <laughs> I probably shelter in place. It, it's not it's just, just ammo, though, right? You need ways to make clean water. Yeah, I've got filters. What, thousand days hey, worth of MREs. <laughs> here's the here's the most important part. Got two years for a family of four. Yeah, here's the most important. I'm part. not crazy though. Yeah, I, just, I know how to brew my own beer. Yeah, so. You know, I've got the basics of survival covered. <laughs> Rob Bartley. Yep. Um, author extraordinaire, gas and oil. Yeah. Oil and gas guy. Ne'er do well. Yeah. I think that true. covers it. And one of my, the funniest lines you gave me is, um, and having a couple beers with you, that you could drink beer all day long if you really want to get under your skin. You have to start with this. That's right. Yeah. Because you're. I'm a big guy. I drink yeah. beer for flavor. <laughs> Beer for flavor, whiskey for effect. So, That's right. Cool. Cheers. Shanta. Yeah.